Good morning. Welcome on this beautiful Creation Care Day Sunday. Before I begin the message this morning, I would like to take a moment to express how honored I am to be with you again on this Sunday as you prepare for the well-deserved retirement of Reverend Nancy Taylor. I am not telling you anything you do not know when I say that she is a giant in the faith community in this city and beyond. She has been an important voice on justice and a pastoral leader as this city has faced many trials, including the marathon bombing. But going through her accolades would literally be preaching to the choir. So I want to take a moment as a woman in ministry to acknowledge the fact that Reverend Nancy, more than 17 years ago, broke the stained glass ceiling in this congregation. The flagship church of the United Church of Christ, which is no small feat. I am sure that here in the church of Ben Franklin and Phyllis Wheatley, nobody questioned whether the church was ready for a woman in leadership. Or no one said that maybe a young guy with a family would be a better option, or an elder statesman might be a more sensible choice. Not here, but in many places in America and many places still here in our Commonwealth, that might have been the response. So every time I wear my collar into interface spaces where I can count the number of women on one hand, Every time I greet male religious leaders whose traditions still do not recognize the ministerial gifts of women, I recognize that the trail has been blazed for me and other women by clergy like Reverend Nancy Taylor. You have more than earned the right to sleep in on Sunday and to let someone else take the late night calls from parishioners and to have others leap in action, into action in response to the call for justice, or to chart out the path for how we lead this body we call the church into the next era of ministry. Thank you for your amazing example. And I know that as you lean into closing out what I'm sure is quite a little bit of a list <laughs> that you have before you transition, I would love to meet you for lunch on the other side of this transition where you'll probably be just a little lighter and a little brighter as you lean into this next phase of life. And now, as we say in my own tradition, it is preaching time. And um, I am well aware that um, it is great. I know this is a diverse body, but in my own tradition, we would spend 10 minutes um, talking about the preacher before we went into the 45-minute sermon. I won't be doing that. So um, here we go. <laughs> the authorship of this book of James is debated among biblical scholars. Some attribute it to James, the brother of Jesus. Others say that it is written by a more educated writer who had more familiarity with Greek traditions, which would put Jesus's brother out of the running. Regardless of who wrote it, the narrative of the text seems to wade into the debate about the relationship between faith and works that was going on in the early church and which continues to be a source of debate 
in Christian communities to the present day. Christians have a special knack for fighting over doctrinal points. We have fought over what people should eat and not eat, what women should wear and not wear, who should govern the church, where and how to baptize, what music to sing in what tempo, and the list goes on. At the time that the book of James was written, the hot debate topic was how much Gentiles should follow the Jewish religious traditions. The church in Jerusalem leaned more towards Gentiles following the letter of the law, and Paul advocated for Gentiles not following the practices possibly at all. The author of James seems not to advocate in one direction or another, but he says in the midst of the back and forth about the specific rituals, do not lose sight of the overall ethical tradition in the Torah, which is the original root of the practices. Do not forget that we still have a command to love God and to love our neighbor. The entire book of James is only five chapters. And having read the entire book, and if you want to say, oh, I read a whole book of the Bible today, this is a good one. And particularly leaning in to chapter two, I want to share three statements that I believe summarize what James is saying. First, God loves us all. But if forced to choose, God chooses the poor. Second, if you are a good Christian who follows the rules, but you don't treat people the way you would want to be treated, God will judge you. And finally, if you believe the right things, but that belief doesn't translate into bold, courageous action, then your faith is dead. These are not just my interpretations. James really doesn't pull any punches in the letter. He's pretty clear, and he doesn't want people to walk away confused, so he's pretty direct about what he says. So starting with the first statement, God loves us all, but if forced to choose, God chooses the poor. In James 1.5, he says that God will give wisdom to any of us who ask, showing the all-loving God. But by verse 10, he reminds us that the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. In verse 11, it says, in the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. In the last verse of chapter one, it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In chapter two, verse four, James says that in choosing the rich over the poor, they have become judges with evil thoughts, a motif that goes back to the Torah in Deuteronomy 16, where God warns the people to make sure that they choose fair and impartial judges, saying in Deuteronomy 16:20, justice, justice, you shall pursue, that you may thrive and occupy the land that the Lord God is giving you. For us as people living in the richest country in human history, in one of the richest states in this nation, sitting in one of the most affluent neighborhoods in this city, this is sobering news. I'm gonna let that just sit for a while and we'll move on to the second point, which is that if you are a good Christian who mostly follows the rules, but you don't treat people 
the way you would want to be treated, God will judge you. Verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. So I want to just admit that I have trouble with these kinds of passages. They seem a little harsh to me because I know that I fall short on a regular basis. I have really good days and then I have bad days and when I am just a hot mess. I even can have a great hour where I'm channeling the Holy Spirit and then turn and look at somebody who I don't even know with a negative thought. I feel like I'm trying and God should cut me some slack. So I want to preface this by saying that I do think God is merciful and does cut us slack. But I also want to be real about what James is saying. He says, you're supposed to follow the whole law and you don't get a pass because you're doing well in one area to be a hot mess in another regard. He uses the example of adultery and murder. Just because you're faithful to your partner doesn't mean you can go kill someone. And I'm like, okay, good, I got that one. I can do that. But he also says, judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the basic deal, if you act like you're all that and that you're perfect, that you're doing so well, that you're above anyone else. If you don't see that other folks are doing the best that they can with what they got, if you don't cut people slack when they mess up, then God won't cut you slack when you make mistakes. If you show mercy to others, then God will show mercy to you. And finally, if you believe the right things, but that belief doesn't translate into bold, courageous action, then your faith is dead. In verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He says, even demons believe in God. There's not really anything special about that. And just in case we might think, oh, okay, okay, got it. If I give the person some food, then I'm good. He's really clear about what qualifies for action. He uses the example of Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his only son, the thing that meant the most to him, to demonstrate that he had faith in God. James gives the example of Rahab, a woman who'd been scorned by many, but she put her very life on the line to save the Israelites. While I think it is good to buy hungry people a meal or make sure that homeless people have warm jackets for the winter, James is making it clear that God calls us to action that pushes beyond our comfort zone and involves some sacrifice like Abraham and Rahab. So I hope I've sufficiently proven my three statements. And now I'm guessing that a bunch of people you say, are you saying, wait, isn't this Care of Creation Sunday? Um, I don't get the connection. So here it goes. 
Many of you may have probably started using or heard the phrase climate justice. It's not exactly clear when the term first be, started being used, but it became popular in environmental justice communities far before it reached the mainstream. See, there has always been a long-term rift between the traditional environmental community and the environmental justice community. The traditional environmental community came from the conservation movement, folks who worked to preserve open space and wild lands. They worked to protect forests and oceans and the animals who were in those spaces. They wanted those spaces to be protected so that generations to come would be able to hike in the mountains or cross-country ski through a forest or go scaling, sailing and see a whale. In the pursuit of these noble goals, they didn't take a lot of time and energy to explore and address the fact that their groups were overwhelmingly white, predominantly rich, and focused in certain regions of the world and even a smaller region in this country. At the same time that the traditional environmental movement was growing, there was another group of folks asking very different questions and working for very different goals. They were predominantly black and also Latino, Native American, Asian, and poor white folks who were watching asthma, cancer, or black lung ravage their communities. They were living next to trash incinerators, downwind from coal-fired power plants, or downstream from chemical factories. People were suffering and dying because their water, their air, and their soil were being poisoned. These movements were led often by women who were sounding the alarm about the disregard for the health and safety of their children, their partners, and their neighbors. Both groups were talking about air, water, and land, but from very different perspectives. The work around climate change started in the traditional environmental community, and so it has been framed around the things that they tended to work on protecting coastal habitats and saving polar bears. Their solutions were focused on activities like recycling and buying hybrid cars and shopping at farmer's markets, all of which I do. Many of these things could fit nicely in the middle-class lifestyles. And so they were promoted, even though things like uh, reducing air travel would have made a bigger difference than all of these things combined. But that would have made people feel bad about their annual trip to Europe and Mexico, as I have done many years. So that wasn't already so high on the list. For years, climate work has been framed around protecting the earth in the same frame as traditional conservation. Even when scientists sounded the alarm about the danger of climate, talking about sea level rise and natural disasters, they framed it from an earth-centric perspective, but talked very little about how it would affect people and who would bear the greatest burden. The it will affect us all frame contributed to not asking deep questions about which communities had the greatest carbon footprints and which communities were living with all the leftover pollution from our consumptive lifestyle. As the buzz began to grow, the environmental justice communities used to being overlooked by the traditional environmental community started using the term climate justice as an act of linguistic resistance. The term was coined to say, you cannot talk about climate without talking about us and how we always bear the greatest burden, even the 
that we never own the factories. It is our bodies and our communities that get sacrificed first, that get asked to bear the greatest cost. And if we are going to talk about climate change, then we must talk about climate justice because justice is the change that we need. As environmental justice communities began to speak louder, some in the traditional environmental community began to listen. As people like Al Gore and Bill McKibben began to travel the world and see the people most directly impacted by climate, they too saw the reality that it was the poor, the marginalized, the female, the young and the old, those with the least power in society who were bearing the greatest brunt of climate change, even as they had done the least to create the problem. As leaders like the Pope spoke up, more of us began to recognize this reality and to ask, what is our responsibility to address this? And I think this passage in James has some clear responses from God's perspective. If God loves us all but is forced to choose, God chooses the poor. If God has a preferential option for the poor, then so should we. The work that we do to address this crisis must start by asking who has been most harmed and how can we promote solutions that repair the harm that we have created. This poor includes both poor humans and other vulnerable beings with whom we share this planet. The trees, the phytoplankton in the ocean, whose living creates the oxygen that we need to breathe and cleans the water that we need to live. If we construct a climate movement that is without justice for the poor, then I'm not sure we deserve to, to survive and God will not be on our side. If you are a good Christian who follows the most of the rules, but you don't treat people the way you would want to be treated, God will judge you. The way we do justice matters. We have a responsibility to create a movement that builds relationships and that connects people one with another, but that also embeds grace and love in how we work together. People are not looking for folks on their high horses, but folks who recognize we are all flawed and lean in to how we together might not be woke one over another, but might work together to create new possibilities in our world. And finally, if you believe the right things, but that belief doesn't translate into bold, courageous action, then your faith is dead. If we are not willing to take climate action that moves beyond niceties, and into the area of real sacrifice, then how can we say we believe in a miracle-working God? For those of you who live in the communities that never get the coal-fired power plants, where they never imagined that the trash incinerators would be placed, the time is now to stand up and to say, if we're going to electrify everything and we need more substations, put them in our neighborhoods, not 
asking environmental justice communities again and again to bear the burden. The book of James doesn't pull any punches. He is clear in his message. But what is also beautiful about James is that he realizes that the church, if it meets the moment, can be a radical example of what Jesus came to show us all. And so on this Care for Creation Sunday, my simple request is that this week, only a week after celebrating the radical sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we choose in the name of climate justice to lift up the poor, to build a movement full of grace, and to lean in to the kind of radical action that is the only proper response from those who serve a God who was willing to give the very body for our salvation. Amen.